Mythology, a new podcast celebrating the culture and history of the island of Ibiza. I'm Bill Beecham, an Ibiza-based journalist, and in each podcast I will interview Ibithans who are contributing in some way to the life and culture of this diverse island. Writer Damien Enright first set foot in Ibiza in the early 1960s and fell straight in with the bohemian, hedonistic, international crowd centred around the Domino Bar next to the port in La Marina. Free-thinking Damien had many adventures, including a failed dope smuggling run from Turkey to Ibiza, which formed the basis of his novel, Dope in the Age of Innocence. The book is now being turned into a TV script by the Gaumont Film Company and could appear on Netflix or another major TV platform. Damien loves Ibiza and spent a lot of time here with his wife Marie over the winter and spring. I caught up with him in the apartment they rented in Varid Array. Well, Damien, it's great to meet you again here, here in Ibiza. Thank you. Thank um, you. I have spent the last few Being days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spent the last few days reading "Dope in the Age of Innocence," oh. which is <laughs> your your story of um, your exploits in Ibiza and around Europe in in the early sixties. Right. You're a writer, and I'd, I'd like to start off by asking you about your your writing. I, I love your writing style. I find that you, you, uh, it's very vivid and your prose is almost a bit poetic sometimes. So mm-hmm. You've also written a book about um, wildlife in, in Ireland and you're a few pro- of them. quite a prolific author, aren't you? So yeah, I wonder if you could just tell me a bit about uh, why, why you became a writer and what, what, um, what you enjoy about writing. Well, it's very strange. I, uh, recently, a guy in Dublin has got in touch with me to ask if he can make a film of a short story which I wrote in 19... I think the date on it is 1973. Um, And he found it in a compendium of stories that had won the Irish Prize of the Year, year by year. And this one happened to have been written in 1973. And it, it won the prize, it won the year's prize. I haven't seen it for 30, 40 years, this story. I've only got one copy of it myself in this compendium book. I have no original copy or anything like that. And um, I'm frankly amazed <laughs> at it when I read it. it I, I like it. Well, and I'm very difficult to please in terms of writing extremely pernickety and difficult but it sure works and it it uh, has got uh, a very nice flow to it now I wrote that out of the blue um, I mean storytelling was always a thing of mine when I was in school I was banged up in a college called Black Rock in Dublin Black Rock College for a few years which I hated that's secondary but, school uh, secondary school okay 
and it's one of the schools in Ireland sort of thing. And uh, anyway, um, I became somehow or other sort of an appointed storyteller to the t my table. That was the table in the refectory where there were 12 uh, people at each table. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I must have told one or two yarns and next thing was they were saying to me, come on, for some reason they gave me the... Uh, the, the, the nickname Bill, that's right, because I told stories about a guy called Bill, whom I knew. And so then they'd say, hey, Bill, come on, man, tell us a story. Come on, over, over dinner, tell us a story. And I seemed to be very good at telling stories back then, where you had certainly um, an audience who wouldn't have been shy about telling you there's a lot of bollocks and shut up and uh -huh. <laughs> eat, eat your dinner and then, leave us alone. Mm. So um, that was a sort of an acid test, if you like. And then, of course, telling stories was also very good in my nefarious career because I, um, you know, had to um, get jobs and get apartments and get used cars and tell generally work a nice story so that it worked out my way mm -hmm. rather than the other guy's way. And so that was then probably led me to writing and uh, yes, I wrote letters home all the time. I wasn't bad at that with my parents whom I had just left Ireland. They were totally shocked that the boy was going away to medical school and I went to medical school for a year, drops out and hits the road and is, they only hear from him every now and then. But, the, you know, I, 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 I liked writing and so this short story was the first thing I ever wrote and tried to get published. I'm even amazed that I wrote it. How old were you then? 79, um, about 30. And I was living with my second wife and three children in an old farmhouse in Bantry in Ireland. And I don't know how I got the time because I had to make a living. I was flogging dreadful coffee machines for my brother who had a business in Dublin. But I was a busy man. I don't know how I got the time to write the story. So I did. I had already, just a second now, I had already sold a film script before that. Uh -huh. Um, of Dope and the Age of Innocence. Okay. So it was in your head already, this story? The story, yeah, I guess I sort of... I made it up. I mean, it's it's clearly fiction. But um, it must have been embryonically sitting there waiting to be born, so to speak. And uh, indeed, if I'd used a lot of the stories that I told about Bill and Molly Colgan and so on, that I told in school, they'd all have made good short stories. The thing with me, I had a sort of very good career as a writer because I didn't go on to follow up that short story with anything else. Uh, the Irish, in the canon of Irish writers, all of them had sort of totally been literary people who did nothing else but that, mm. hung around Dublin, Trinity College, part of a group, writing group, this sort of thing. Mm. I was off in India, or I yeah. was in Afghanistan, scoring dope or something, or in Turkey, uh, and getting married and having five kids when I was, uh, when I was 30. And, um, so did it come to you, uh, did, did you start making a living out of writing at some stage? No, I um. started making a living out of writing 
when I finally reached, uh, when I came to, back to Ireland in 1989-1990. So I uh, started making money when I came back to Ireland in that very, very strange coincidence. Uh, my father came to visit us. He was at the time, I suppose, 85, 87 maybe. And in the local village, my father was a bank manager. There was a window saying Monster and Leinster Bank, which was his bank. Mm. And he used to come to this little village of Timberleague once a week uh, for sub-office, they called it. Anyway, um, I wrote a story about him. He, we went up to Timberleague and I said to him, stand in front of this window there because, you know, like it's a historic artefact. None of them were left. Monster and the Bank had been amalgamated with other banks, merged years before. So I then sent in an article to the Irish Examiner, which sort of would have about... Um, there's three national dailies in Ireland. The Irish Times, Irish Independent, Irish Examiner. Irish Examiner is mainly in the south. It's over like the Manchester Guardian used to be at, at its parish. So I sent it in, and uh, lo and behold, I got a letter back from an editor saying, you know, I, I got this, when I get stuff from the public, the first thing I do is reach for my red pencil and start editing the whole thing. I didn't want to touch a word of it, Damien. Do you write? Have you written professionally? So I said, well, yes, I have. I, I've written, I've published a few things in the Japan Times when I was in Japan, and a couple of things in the Times of India. Uh, but that's all, half a dozen articles. So he said, well, would you think of writing a bit for the examiner, you know, column now and then? So I sent him in three columns right away. And he said, great, you're on, once a week. And so, bang, immediately I had a, an income, which we badly needed in Ireland, because we went to Ireland with no jobs and no prospects. So Ireland was an economic recession. And so then I started making money from writing. Then uh, the local town, the local village I live in is called Court McSherry, and it's got a beautiful bay, and it's a place where um, overseas anglers came. And uh, the local uh, landlord of one of the local pubs said to me, look, Damien, the women, uh, the wives of these men are sitting around uh, with nothing to do all day, so what about writing a walk for them? I said, OK. So it was then typed up and just photocopied. But then the local co-op came to me and said, hey, would you write a... a you know, a, a serious walkbook for this village. And then next thing was a government body. They s said uh, that uh, I was told to go and talk to them. It turned out they were all fans of my column. I was very lucky. They all liked the column very much. So they said, sure, we'll get you the money. So next thing was they got me money. So now I was writing a walkbook of, of uh, Court McSherry Bay. And then, when I'd written that and got 5,000 copies printed or whatever, next thing was Kinsale rang me up and said, hey, Damien, do you ever think of writing a book of Kinsale? And then, when I'd done that, Clive Kilty rang up. <laughs> so I ended up doing eight of them yeah. and distributing them. I first had the distributor, I let him buy the whole lot, 
the rights to the whole lot for a very uh, healthy sum. Uh, as I was saying just now, unfortunately, he hasn't updated them, and some of them were written in 1997, which means that where there were tracks, there are now holes, graveyards, motorways, <laughs> etc. But uh, so anyway, that was how I started writing and making uh, some money out of writing. And you're still doing that column? Is that the same one that you're? I do the column, which I've now done for 28 years. Um, yeah, 28 it... years every <laughs> every Monday. Yeah. Millions, I don't know, about a million and a half words or something like that. Do you you find writing easy? The process, can you describe your writing process? Uh, Yeah, Uh, yeah. Well, generally, I have ideas which I jot down during the week. Somebody says something to me, and bingo, it goes down there. Sometimes I've written whole columns on this piece of this notebook. I don't attempt to put them into a mobile phone and start keying them in because that would drive me around the bend and I'd lose the idea when I got stuck on the first couple of lines. There I've been for, now as I said, 28 years. And I write them because they can be funny. They're supposed to be nature columns. They're they're humorous at times. Uh, and, And also they veer totally and utterly away from nature at times. But I always get in some little hook like... Uh, example which I've used before is, you know, we're in Cuba, we're in Havana or in Baracoa or somewhere like that. And, uh, you know, it be- I begin with, as as we crossed the main square in Baracoa that evening, the bats were hanging in the trees. Fruit bats were hanging in the trees or something. Um, so uh, we, we went on to meet some friends and then it's all about salsa and music and the crack and the in the nightclub and not, not nightclub bar and as we return then the bats have been overdoing it on the fruit which is now fermented and they're lying the flats of their backs on the pavement so clearly absolutely out of it so it's got a nature connection mm. but the article is actually about Cuba yes the Guajiras the dancing and all that stuff well I've noticed that you've got um some sort of quite strong connection with wildlife and nature. You, you're, you really keenly observe yeah. details of nature, don't you? Yeah. We, we were on a walk, a night walk, a couple of weeks ago yeah. to see a, moon, a moonlit walk up yeah. at Kalazaraka. Yes, and, you, and I noticed there you were really focusing in on things like lichen on the, on the walls. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm, I've always been fascinated with that. In that short story, actually... It reminded me, the one written in 1973, I introduced a little bit of oneself, which one does as a writer, and the the boy is sitting by the river. He's um, playing truant from school, and he notices how many mayflies are rising off of the water and how chaffinches and pied wagtails are coming down from the trees and nipping them in the bud in their very first minute of life. And I begin to make sort of statistics, uh, you know, how many mayflies actually survive to fly high in the sky and be available. Uh, and uh, then I get pissed off with the um, chaffinches or something, and I've got a catapult. So I start whacking it into the trees across the way, not to kill the birds, but to create a commotion so that they piss off from that part of the riverbank and leave my mayflies alone, you know. Mm. So all the time when I was a kid, I was very, very interested in nature. 
I would say that maybe that sort of keen observation of nature, you have a similar approach with human beings too. I mean, when I'm reading your, your book, you're making very uh, detailed observations about the characters uh, and description, vivid descriptions of the characters yeah, that you've good. met. That's yeah. good. Glad to hear it. Well, maybe we should move back to the 1960s in Ibiza mm-hmm. now. And, and before we talk about your particular experiences there, I wondered what... Uh, how, do you know how Ibiza was discovered by in the international crowd in the... In yeah, era. yeah. Well, I've learned more about it actually on this particular trip. I couldn't come back to Ibiza, of course, for many, many years. And when I did come back here, eventually, I came back with my passport in Irish, having tried out the passport in Irish by going to Gomera first to check I could even come into Spain without getting banged up. Mm. Um, and so I was Seamus Mockenrochtig when I came back here, okay. which is my name in Irish. Right. Anyway, when I got back here, uh, at that time the received wisdom, the sort of rumour was that, that people who came over here uh, in the early 60s uh, or in the late 50s were, one of them was a guy called Bad Jack Hand and his brother Philly and his wife Peggy Liebler. And they ran a jazz club in Barcelona called the Jamboree. And when they, and they robbed banks and things, I mean, heavy stuff, they were left over from the GI Bill. I think I've got that in Dope and the Age of mm, Innocence. Yeah. And uh, so they would, uh, on the run from one thing or another, or just simply because they'd run out of money and they owed a lot of money, they'd come over here with a guy also called Jack Longini, which is very interesting because Jack was sort of the real southern gentleman and he had proper legal degrees and so on and a wife called Lorca who was reputed to be a millionaire. But in fact I discovered that of course now that there were a number of artists and writers passed through here in the 50s, even in the 30s. So this was not the we weren't the only sort of outsiders, but it was probably the major influx started at the beginning of the 60s. Mm. Even in my own experience, um, there were more people. I went back to England because of running out of money and to make money uh, on various occasions during the... I was sort of here on and off from 61 to 65. Uh, the longest period, sustained period, was probably about a year. And then there were six months and then and so on. And it, it was building. Well, I mean, an obvious example of it was that the Domino Bar was really the only bar, foreign bar, when I came here. Now, there was Pepe Valenciano, who had a tiny little hole in the wall down near the Moya, down near the pier. And we'd go down there sometimes at one o'clock in the morning and he'd play the guitar. There were about six seats. And there was a bar run, run by a policeman called Escandel, chief of police here in Valladolid, which was a Spanish bar, but foreigners went there. Mm. And that was it. Now, mm-hmm. by 65, however, there were other bars. There was the Oveja Negra, which was um, an Argentinian uh, bar. And there was... Uh, Tits Renee, as they called her, she was running a bar. Mm-hmm. 
and so there were and then there was Sandy's bar out in uh, Santa Eulalia I believe I'm not sure I was never there um, and so I, I saw perceptibly there was um, you know five times the number of foreigners or ten times the number of foreigners here in 74 that there was in 1961, mm. in 1964, as opposed to 1961. It had increased exponentially. And so that's, and then there was a few people like myself um, who had come over from Ibiza uh, and uh, so there were maybe five houses, six houses that was all in Formentera. And, and what attracted people to Ibiza and Formentera was that, that it was a, a peaceful, primitive... No, Formentera had a lot to do with the fact that here in Ibiza at the time, unbelievably, in the 60s when we would go out to smoke a joint... We'd go out of the domino bar quietly and go down the pier to have a little smoke ourselves. A guy called, particularly my friend, was Gordon Rayner. He was a Canadian painter. And at night late, we'd go up to Peggy Liebler's in, in Figueretos and listen to jazz in the semi-darkness and by the light of the fire. And that was really sort of a hip place to, to be in. There was only about a half a dozen people there. So um, dope was not really kosher with the uh, domino crowd. They were, some of them were older, they were interested in drinking. They were, and they, we for some reason felt it was very important not to let them know that we were smoking dope because somebody there might just pass on the news to the cops mm. and we'd be in deep trouble. So then Formentera became a place, you see, where people went the, 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 the dopesters, the sort of California dreamers, the, the, the hippie uh, element, because the hippie element came in toward 64, 65. I mean, when we were here first in 61, it was almost like leftover from the beat generation. Mm. It was able beat nicks became a word, but it, it wasn't, we didn't have flowers in our hair and we didn't wear, you know, Coloured trousers or mm. any of that stuff. Mm. Um, it was, you know, you had long hair, worn jeans, and a worn shirt because you didn't have the money for a good jeans and a good shirt. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't image, it was necessity. So they were the kind of people you didn't see anybody really then being uh, all dolled up as a sort of a prototypical uh, beatnik. So they just they came to a beat there because it was a place to write, and it was cheap, I guess, as well. Oh, yeah, the people who got here, um, well, first of all, there were the people from New York, because it became somehow known in the village in, in New York that you could get the $110 boat, Yugoslavian freighter, to Tangier, and you could work your way up to this magic place called Ivisa. Mm -hmm. And you had a, a small group, esoteric group. These, these almost happened sort of with with families back home, you know. One guy came from California, told his friends, and then they came. And 
That was the way it spread. It wasn't universal at all. And then, I mean, there was nobody from Ireland. We were the only Irish. There were very few English, uh, very, very few Germans or Dutch. The, the Dutch, there were Dutch, yeah. There, yeah. there were a lot of Americans. I mean, proportionately, when I say a lot, there were, you know, 10, 12 Americans. And were, they on the run? were these Americans on the run from the uh, Vietnam draft? Actually, funnily enough, I, I was never aware of, of that terribly much, but I guess they were. Yeah. But none of them seemed to talk about it. And a lot of them were older, way beyond the Vietnam. People like Steve Seeley and... Uh, Fat George and um, Walker Marty and these people, they all had names, Paul Brunswick, they all had nicknames because there were a number of Georges, so there was Russian George, Fat George, uh, you know. and uh, So, um, yes, it was, American was very much the, the trip. And uh, I think that sort of hip language and so on was really American. Could you tell me uh, how you ended up in Ibiza for the first time? Having dropped out of, of uh, medical school in Ireland, I went over to Scotland in pursuit of a girl who immediately rejected me because she was a nurse and when she got to Scotland she had doctors, real doctors, not dropouts. And so I um, then hitchhiked south to London with a girl who later became... Totally coincidentally, when I was on the run here, she was also on the run because she'd been involved with Bad Jack, Jack Hand and a murder in uh, Barcelona. Yeah, I came down to London and uh, almost the first night there, I met my wife, who was become my wife. Uh, and she was, uh, we met in a very crowded pub, <coughs> hit it off instantly with, with jokes and laughs and so on. And then I married her, and um, she uh, got uh, pregnant, um, and uh, she had. We went off to hitchhike to India. We had a huge accident in Germany where she got really wrecked. She was in hospital for three months, and during that time she discovered that she was pregnant. Um, we got back to London. She got compensation, but it was nothing, 400 pounds or something for her legs smashed to pieces, etc. Anyway, um, we um, got back to London and we got an apartment so she could have the babies. I, got, I had to somehow find accommodation for us. First of all, the landlady threw us out when she found there were twins. She said she was ready for one child, but not two. So anyway, we lived in a garage for a week. Happily, the children were in incubators in the hospital. Uh, and then uh, a friend of mine said to me, why don't you get a job as a prep school teacher because you'll get a free house. Uh, so I said, So I went out. I went to an agency called Gabita String in London. Uh, top people's agency, uh, you know, supplying uh, teachers of public schools and this sort of thing. And um, they introdu introduced me to a school in Slowbox. So I went and lived in Slowbox. It was a lovely little cottage, free cottage with the with the job. That was the most important thing. Uh, and um, we lived there, but Sally, my ex-wife, got 
terribly bored there and because we uh, and also I wasn't going to stay a prep school teacher I had no intention for the rest of my life I wanted to travel we both wanted to travel so then um, my parents were appalled that I should be a school teacher earning eight pounds a week uh, and uh, with twins and an English wife and so on my father was saying Oh, you know, why don't you come back to Ireland? You'll immediately get into the bank. I can guarantee that. Nepotism and mm, so on. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, I'd have soon gone to the Vatican and been a priest as going into the bank in Ireland. So um, I said to him, look, Dad, you know, I can't become a proper school teacher, for instance, with a language. Now, I've always been in Spanish and I would love to learn it and if I went to Spain it's terribly cheap to live in Spain and so I got 250 pounds from him I went to the Spanish embassy and a, a very nice man called Senor Bueno who came from Mallorca who was the under secretary invited me over to his house and his wife and himself gave me dinner and told me all about Mallorca so I went to Mallorca and Mallorca was, was lovely, and uh, I found a house there. I went on my own. I found a house there for us. Sally came down, uh, and Mallorca was actually, it was lovely in terms of, you know, weather and everything else. But the crowd in Puerto de Andrach were all British, colonial, retired, Kenya policemen of this kind of bullshit with pressed shorts, I've said in the book. The stipulation was that you should, officers should have three pairs of pressed shorts and, and ladies should have two um, uh, evening dresses. <laughs> and so this wasn't our thing at all. So uh, Mallorca wasn't our thing at all. Somebody told me about Ibiza being far out. So I came over, looked at it, had a terrific time and went back to Mallorca to tell Sally that, look, man, this is just having the people are so great that just here they're all boring and sort of toffee-nosed and so on. So we moved to Ibiza. Mm. And we had, I don't know how much we had money we had left by then. We got a house in Casas Baratas, belonging to <coughs> Escandel, the chief of police. I guess the social scene was based around dominoes, mainly. Can you the just domino, talk a bit yeah. about dominoes and what, what uh, it was Not like? dominoes, but domino. Dom the domino part. Right? The domino. Okay. And, uh, well, you know, I uh, met some people, I guess. Uh, no, no, when I came over on my own, that was where I went immediately because the, the boat discharged right opposite the domino. The gangplank came down and you literally walked over and... You saw a group of people hanging out outside this bar on, on chairs in various states of disrepair. And, um, you know, the, the, the waterfront was much, much narrower. The boats were much closer to the houses. Uh, and there's a lower level, as you know. That lower level was a dirt track. Mm. And um, at night, at certain times of the year, the Valenciano fishing boats would come in right opposite the domino. You could practically, you know, throw a stone and it would... It, they were that close and there they were sort of cooking and little fires on deck. It was very, very romantic. 
and uh, boats out in the bay uh, catching octopus at night with uh, flare lights and so on. And so the domino, I met the domino sort of the minute I got off the boat on my own, and that was why I thought Ibiza was such an incredible place, because the people were all, you know, something else. They were outrageous characters. And uh, so and Sally loved it. She really took to it. And um, so that became our society and the people that we knew. Mm. What, what do you think it was about that attracted you to those to those people? Because they were a bit like myself, I think. They were chancers and, <laughs> and you know, sort of nondescripts. They, they were people who sort of made their way and they were romantic and they talked a lot and uh, were storytellers and aspirant writers, aspirant painters. None of them particularly famous. Uh, there was Steve Seeley, who had been on the cover of Time magazine with a novel of his years before, and he was writing a novel called The End of Mercy. But he'd been doing it for years, and he was basically an alcoholic, old Steve. So there were these interesting people. Mm. The domino was the centre of the world. Now, there were people, I find out a bit more about it since, there were people out in the country, older and better off, but not many. They were very sparse and thin on the ground. There was people like Jack Beeching, a poet who lived up in San Vicente, and he used to come into town once a month with his wife and kids. And they were on the island at the same time, because they wrote, yeah. they wrote a book, which Martin Davis is also published. Yes, his, his, uh, his wife wrote a book about, that second wife wrote a book about the time. They used to come into town on bare feet, walking the Caminos the whole way in. I'm not so sure if they maintained the bare feet or if, if, I, if that's a false memory of my part, but they certainly walked all the way into town and they'd spend a couple of nights here and then they'd set off to walk back to something Sunday, which is a hell of a long way. Yeah, one of the characteristics of the place was that um, there were very few women, foreign women. Very few, I'd say. One foreign woman for every ten foreign men. And uh, you couldn't, you know, like, wives' marriages broke up almost upon arrival. Mm. I don't know why, the people must have been disaffected or something. I guess Sally was disaffected. She and I split up. Mm. And uh, it was largely because I think she just found a world which she absolutely loved. She was adored by everybody in the Domino because she was very pretty and very much the life and soul of the party. And There's anyway, a passage in in, the, in your book where you describe how really um, men, husbands, couldn't really object to their wives enjoying themselves because if you did so, you were a Victorian man and you didn't yeah. really fit in in our that's scene. Right. That's right, yeah. that's right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. To, to uh, sort of restrict one's wife would be positively uh, Victorian, would be positively... Uh, sort of knocked on and define you as some sort of a a square of some kind. You know, you want to get in, get in the scene, man. You know, you can lay somebody else's wife. You know, so people lay your wife. You know, so 
I mean, if if uh, equally, I think if you went off and started schooling some other woman, and and your wife objected, people would say that she's a pain in the ass. I think it it worked both ways. Well, the sixties was a time of great social change, wasn't there? All those Victorian values were changing. Yeah. Very much so. Um, one of the, uh, strangely enough, one of the bitches that, that uh, Sally had um, was that I had had a scene with a, a girl in, in London. And I told Sally about this, you see, that was the, the, that was the scene at the time. But that was the only incident of my own infidelity to her, to her, which was miraculous. I was mad about her. But it's also mad I just wanted to, to say that uh, you described the agony of the, the breakup with her yeah, and your enduring love for her and her rejection of you right. over a, quite a period of time yeah. very vividly. You know, it really strikes a chord with anyone who's been dumped. Yeah. Who, who yeah. still feels that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was devastated. I thought that she was the greatest thing that ever happened, she was so funny, we were so good together, we were socially really excellent, we could play off one another and people would always be in stitches when the two of us were around. And so I found it very, very uh, just heartbreaking. I also had two children, two little boys and you know I was mad about them and obviously the way things were at the time, the children would stay with the with the woman, there was we didn't know anything about divorce, and we were in Spain anyway, and custody of the children. I mean, I didn't have a bob to my name. We had the two hundred and fifty quid, and once that ran out, we didn't have any uh, any money. Now I sent her. I then went back to England and made money and sent her money, and then of course I met Anne and came down. Uh, within a year, year and a half, I had another woman, and uh, within a year and a half or two years, I had another child. Um, and uh, I managed somehow to keep sending them some money all the time, not nearly as much as they, they needed or as I could afford, but I could only make so much money. So what, it, was, it was during the second relationship that you moved to Formentera, I think. You yeah. Talk to me a bit about life in Formentera. Formentera. So when we went over to Formentera first, we rented a farmhouse which was uh, half in ruins, and um, we just lived, uh, we'd taken acid, you see, in, um, in here in Ibiza, the very first acid that was around in Ibiza. And it had really had a profoundly beautiful effect on both of us. We had a fabulous trip. And were really, we could, we were still in the acid trip. We could sort of, the, the movement of the wind and the pine trees or the the colours of the sky, the flowers, the earth was... We were living in a, just another space altogether and we wanted to get right away from the domino and the booze and the shouting, which was great fun at one time, the roaring at one another, the, you know, guys having a stand-up argument in the bar. We wanted to get away from all that and just get to somewhere where the earth sort of really was the thing and we were part of it and to merge into it. And so 
We knew almost nobody on our first trip to Formentera, which only lasted probably about six, three or four months before we ran out of money. And then um, we went back to England and made money and we came back down again. So we got to Formentera and the second time we were there, there were a little group of friends of ours, about a dozen. And really, it was almost like medieval life in Palestine or something. People would wander around the island, they'd drop in on friends, and we'd sit and talk of everything from philosophy to trips and where your head went in certain conditions. And it was really Middle Ages. There was no, no mechanical transport, no electric light at the beginning. Fires at night and people showing up and talking, talking, and getting stoned and lying around. So people were uh, not able to earn money there, I guess, but it no. seems like you were all um, going somewhere else to earn a, a load of money so that to fund your life. Yeah, you, you, you brought your money from elsewhere. Nobody had any... Or if they did, they didn't show any signs of ostentatious wealth. Mm. And what about the, uh, how did the locals react to you? Oh, the locals were just in another world. Um, we, um, I got friendly with the guy who lived closest to us. He was a carpenter, I think he, I've mentioned him in the book. He, he got his wife to modernise her dress and she looked awful. From, she looked beautiful in the Ibithenko clothes with the and uh, you'd see the women working in the fields with the, uh, the with the black skirts and they'd lift them up and there'd be petticoats and pinks and yellows and uh, that was a very yeah. sad passage actually i found yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, that was yeah. it it was a, it was a sort of a, a comment on the end of the old ways and uh, we knew him and we knew his wife and his wife was lovely lovely woman and but by and large the locals you just got on with your own lives, did you? Absolutely. We hardly knew that. Well, just a second. Now, there was another guy, <coughs> a man that I knew who was older, and I used to go fishing with him sometimes. Um, in the morning, very early in the morning, he used to pass our house going down to a little cala, uh, and we'd go out and we got flying fish. But we didn't have any intimate gatherings. With Longinia, I went over and saw a pig being... Um, turned into Sobrasada. Um, Longini knew them better. His Spanish was also, he, he spoke everything. Mm. Uh, I spoke what what I could speak, which well, was okay, I suppose, but very limited. And it was Castellano. And they didn't speak Castellano. So I was going to say, um, you, you mentioned how you'd taken acid before you went to Formentera. And, there's, and drugs is a sort of common theme throughout the book. Yeah. I just wanted to, could you sort of describe your relationship with drugs over the years and um, how big an impact did it have on your life in those days? I think acid had an impact on my life right up to now. I think acid was... Acid fitted me perfectly. It was a perfect fit and it was a perfect fit for Anne as well. And when I was a little fellow, I was telling Maria about it yesterday, I was absolutely, uh, for a very short period, when I was in Blackrock College, I was terribly religious. But I wasn't religious 
in the sort of way that the other Catholic boys were. I was in rapt. I, I was in a, a religious space which really didn't have anything to do with the priests around me or the statues around me. Those things didn't interest me, had no effect. I just had reached a sort of a high. And so therefore, acid was the perfect match. Mm. And that sort of has informed my psyche probably ever since. As far as drugs were concerned over the years, you mean? Um, well, smoked a lot of dope um, and would try anything and have tried everything. Coke and smack. Uh, yeah, okay, maybe I didn't get sick, but I just didn't like the effect of it. It was deadhead as far as I was concerned. It seemed to sort of take you away from everything. Whereas LSD, it, it really brought you closer to yeah. Maybe that's what's given you your ability to observe nature and so on so vividly now. Mm. Maybe that's helped. For well, this, uh, the, the, uh, and, and cocaine equally, I wasn't interested in. It made you too jumpy and tooth grinding and this sort of thing. And my pals were, I mean, when I was writing the origin of, of Dope in the Age of Innocence, of this, of the, as, as a film script, it was first written as a film script, I, would, I was working, I'd work 12 hours straight a day, every day, on that. And I was, my wife and Anne and the kids were down in the country. I'd go down on weekends. I remember three or four weekends I made a habit of doing a half a jack of smack before setting off because it made me high and talkative. It didn't make me fall out. It had an, the opposite, totally opposite effect. And it was great because I was driving down the A30, which is a notorious road at the weekend, for maybe, it was maybe a two hour, two and a half hour, three hour drive to get to the little village where she was living. And so <clears throat> I found it very useful like that. But I do remember I had a crisis with it. I'd used it. I remember on the Sunday I was to bring out my children to meet the kids the day and I felt absolutely wrecked. Uh, the answer was to use some smack. I had a half a jack or a jack of smack and it was, I had a needle. So the whole thing was there in Tony Hunter's room. And so I, for the first time, really did it up myself. There was a window <laughs> above me on the right and I was sitting on the, on the bed and the light from the sunlight suddenly sort of broke through the clouds and I was there pinpointed in it and I thought to myself, what the fuck am I doing? It's a Sunday afternoon and you can't go over to your kids and that you bollocks. So I went over to the fireplace and turned away, didn't look at what I was, just turned my face away and squirted it into the fireplace. And that was the last time I had any question, the one and only time I had any question of becoming addicted. Could we go back to um, the trip, the big trip to Turkey, which is one, one of the central stories of the book? Yeah, right, okay. Uh, I, um, we were in Fomentera. We'd done some traveller's checks, scams in London. 
which was very easy. You buy the checks, you lose them, I find them, I cash them, you go and get a refund because you've lost your checks and up to $300 they gave them to you without any checks. Any, without any checks, travelers checks, without any, I mean, investigation or anything. They, that was a guarantee of American Express and Bank of America and First National City that they would refund up to $300, and, but no questions asked. Very generous. Yeah. $300, of course, wasn't very much money because $300 at times £100. And, but uh, it was, if you were living in Formentera, it was a whole lot of money. You could live there for practically a month on that. Um, and so, anyway, so I'd been up and down to London and sort of adventuring, etc. Anne was down in Formentera with the kiddo, and Sally was in Ibiza with my other two kids. And so I was just in an adventurous frame. So um, this, we were sitting around the fire when I somebody said, oh yeah, I met a guy in London, very old friend of mine, Mike Furness, and he said he'd been in Turkey, he'd scored some dope, and uh, it was great, great dope, and uh, Turkey was a great place to get it, and it wasn't too expensive and so on. That was in summertime, he told me. By now, by the time I got around, it was nearly winter. And so we said, myself and... Uh, an American called Glen Eddy, called Carlo in the book, a painter from San Francisco, dead now unfortunately, um, uh, and uh, said, uh, let's go to Turkey then. I had an old VW van parked over in Barcelona and the, uh, well I did a deal, now I had a sports car and I swapped it for the van. And anyway, we set off for Turkey. Uh, without really any research whatsoever. Uh, we possibly had a road map. I guess we must have. But not in any way thinking, but in Turkey it's going to be minus 10 degrees, it's going to be freezing. And Turkey's a really dangerous country. I mean, if you get busted, you're really up the creek into Turkey. We didn't think of any of that. Didn't give it a moment's thought. All was going to be okay. Well, you got away with the, these scams yeah. so far. Yeah, I so. always got away with the scams. And yeah. in fact, I put my two friends up to it. I brought them up to London, tutored them in what to do, and they did it, and we all made some money. Uh, and uh, so anyway, we got to Istanbul and uh, went to uh, some taxi drivers and asked them... Where could we get some dope, hashish? Hashash. And they said, uh, oh, you can get it, I can, can get you some. And we said, well, how much is it a kilo? And they said, so much. And we said, chop which is a bit too much for us. But uh, we had a gun. We then thought, let's sell this to, we brought it with us only for sale. A sale item. And we produced the, the weapon took for these taxi drivers and asked them they want to buy it. And it was, as I think I said, it was like a Demon Runyon chorus. There were three of them sitting across. They had these huge taxis in, in Turkey. Uh, Dolman, I think they call them, where they pick up people. They, they walked like a bus. And uh, three of them had, when they heard that we were wanting to buy hash or something, they'd called over pals, and three of them were sitting in the front. 
And when we produced the gun, I said to Carlo, Carlo was carrying the gun, I was doing the talking. And so Carlo produced the gun and they looked at one another and they looked at us. And then almost like a chorus line, they put their hands into their inside jacket pockets and produced serious artillery <laughs> and said, gone. They said, this, this is gone. That is not gone. We went on then to look for dope at the source. That was our sort of idea. Because we really were looking for adventure as much as we were looking for dope. And uh, so we had it south and everywhere we went. We went to a village and we'd sit at a tea shop and then we'd say to somebody, hush, hush. And in every case they freaked. They'd sort of say, get out, and no, hush, hush, no. Because Turkish police were so heavy on Hashash, that it was, uh, that they were scared of us, you know. Anyway, um, eventually we went all the way to Yarbakir, which was Turkish, uh, Kurdish Turkey, way over near the Iran border. It's a long way. It was madness, yeah. madness. And in snow and driving, driving snow, there were trucks wrecked, wrecked, when I say wrecked, broken down. Uh, all the way with sometimes once or twice there were guys sitting underneath them with a little fire sort of waiting for rescue. Uh, we rescued a French couple and a Du Chavot who were coming from Lebanon. Uh, but uh, we uh, eventually, on the way back, then we turned around at Yarwak uh, and started coming back uh, the same route. And we got to the town of Adana. And one morning in Adana, we were sitting outside a cafe uh, in bright sunlight. I remember everybody sitting in a row along the front of the cafe uh, when I sort of smelled something. We, we thought, somebody's smoking, this is something. And we looked, and there was a guy who had almost done it probably on purpose, but he was a real dude. He was different than the other Turks. Uh, and uh, he had a sort of a coat over his shoulders and so on. So I, uh, I, I looked at him and he said, hush, hush. I said, yeah. And uh, he said, uh, come with me. So I went with him and we went with him. And uh, he took us to a shop, first of all, and the people there chased us out of the shop. But anyway, he then said, took us to a hotel, which was actually a knocking shop. There were unfortunate women sitting around and sort of uh, stained slips and this kind of thing. And he put us in a room and about an hour, half an hour later, a guy came along and said, you want to buy hashish? Two guys. And uh, we said, yes. So we sat and talked. But they were very suspicious of us and very standoffish and so on. They were young, they were our own age. Um, but then I sort of, because there was a silence where they said we want so much a kilo and I said no way, absolutely not, we, we, we won't. I always did the talking, Glenn was a quiet type. Uh, hugely reliable man, terrific, he'd die for you, but he, was, uh, he didn't do any talking. Um, and uh, so I... Um, 
my wallet was just lying there on the bedside table and I picked it up and there was a picture of Anne and the kids, I think it was, and I said, yes, my wife and the kids. And we sort of hit it off. And I said, we have to get it for such and such a price, otherwise we can't do it. And he said, okay. So anyway, um, I must get a copy of this because I haven't told this story for some time. So anyway, we um, then, and they took us to a warehouse and that was an extraordinary scene. It was like straight out of the movies. Um, We went upstairs to the first floor and to to one side there was a little annex huge room like a warehouse would be just and empty but a little annex off it and there was <coughs> sitting an old man with the real Turkish trousers which you see everywhere now but you didn't see them then except in Turkey and um, a boy uh, who was in semi-military uniform and a brazier <coughs> a lighted brazier and the man was baking up slabs of hash. The boy would wet, it would have a newspaper and he'd tear a strip about as big as an A4 page. Uh, he would dip it in the wa- in water. He would then pour um, pollen onto it, wrap it up very neatly like almost a chocolate bar and give it to the old man. He'd drop it on the floor and the old man would pick it up with the tongs and put it onto the brazier. And he'd have three or four of them going on the brazier at a time. And as the paper would begin to light, he'd lift them off and slap them on the ground. And, le- and then the boy would get up and stamp on, on it. Later, two, two heavy men came along and they were reading the process the factory really began I mean it was real automation the boy was more quickly producing the stuff the man was more quickly baking it and there were these two heavy Turks I remember they were chanting and they were turning out and then the boy was opening uh, or somebody else was opening the paper and uh, turning out these slabs thin slabs of, of hashish which looked almost like licorice, licorice sticks. Like and, resin. Uh, hmm? Like hash resin. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, they, they were now real hashish, exactly, mm. rather than pollen. Mm. Uh, brown, very brown in colour. And um, they were just stacking them up. And we discovered later what for. Anyway, after a while of watching this going on, the whole floor sort of moving up and down. And smoke everywhere. It was, and on the walls. I forgot to tell you that. <coughs> this really blew our minds. There were huge movie posters. I mean, really big, like, and you put up in the front of a cinema, of Ben Hur and uh, Spartacus, and um, so there's Kirk Douglas with the dimple in his chin, looking down at us, waving a big sword. Uh, or something. <laughs> it was um, really unbelievable to see these things, so colourful and so on, uh, amongst the smoke and the 
movie posters and the floor going up and weren't down. But weren't you terrified? Terrifying? No. We no. weren't no, terrified at yeah, all. We adventure. were just bloody open-mouthed fascinated. Yeah. Um, we'd had a joint, of course. So we were sitting there in the middle of it stoned looking at this magic. I mean, if they put it on as a stage show, they couldn't have done better. And so then, next thing is Cesar, who was the guy who, uh, who was the capo uh, of, of the operation, the guy that we'd met in the hotel room and who'd made the decision to bring us back there and uh, made a price with us. He came down some open thread stairs from a room above and uh, said, come on up, you guys. So we came up and... There, there was another brazier, and there was sitting around a bigger brazier. There was a group of maybe a dozen, but the atmosphere upstairs was also incredibly surreal and magic. And there were no film posters or anything like that, but there were a whole lot of Turks and they were all, you know, sort of friendly. You know, sort of hello. So we came in, sat down. The guy says to us that. Uh, um, we the, the deal was sealed in front of the group, if you like. You're going to get five kilos, you're going to pay so much. Anyway, but a different person came in with accompanied by about three or four pals, and they looked like they were sort of serious, serious criminals, possibly. Um, they were very sharply dressed, they were different than the other Turks who were all sort of down home people. The deal wasn't made until he was there. When Cesar Cesar said, right to me, we're making this deal, you get five kilos of hash, so much. So he said, so show me the money. So uh, I nudged Glenn. Glenn produced the money. And um, the next thing was the guy, the spiv as I call him in the book, jumps, practically jumps off his seat and says, dollars! We don't want fucking dollars. Uh, no, no, sorry, lira. This is Turkish lira. Turkish lira. We want dollars. So uh, I said, lira, we're in fucking Turkey, man. This is Turkish lira, Turkey, huh? He said, no, dollars, dollars, dollars. And he grabbed the money out of Glenn's hand and threw it onto the brazier. I mean, talk about high drama. So, it was and then everybody went quiet because it sat on the brazier. Now, the brazier is not, as you know, a whole lot of flames. It's sort of dead coals. So it didn't catch fire immediately. And there was a silence. And then it began to... Um, along the edges <laughs> began to sort of uh, scorch and uh, in the meantime Car Cesar said to your man you know what's your problem you know this is lira this is money and the guy said dollar asset dollar asset so no Cesar stood up picked it off the fires just as we thought it was going to catch fire. I mean, it, if you'd created it for a movie moment, you couldn't do better. Because there really was. I mean, one knew they weren't going to leave. 
you know, whatever the equivalent of two or three hundred dollars, go up in smoke. But at the same time, it looked very much like if they weren't very quick, it would. He stood up to pull it out, and then he was standing, and he sort of made a, a speech, a Philippic, if you like, <clears throat> about, you know, this is money. We are accepting this money. You, as far as you're concerned, know for me, we are accepting this money, and sort of, fuck you. Mm. And so there was mumble over there, but the deal was basically done. The Spiv pissed off with his own tourage. And then they said, okay, um, everything is ready, so you're ready to go, so we're leaving. And we, so we said, well, where's the hash? And they said, that's okay, that's okay, you'll get the hash. The VW came around the corner. And I jumped in, Glenn jumped in, and Cesar jumped in, all in the front. Cesar said, OK, drive, drive. So I started driving, and about 50 yards down the street, Cesar said, open the window, open the window. So I opened the window, and as we passed the corner, a guy came running out of the, the dark with a, a big package, threw it through the window, and rum, off we went out of town into the night and started off to make our way back to Istanbul. There was snow, I mean, all the time. All the time in Turkey there had been snow. It had been dreadful driving conditions. And now coming out to Bulgaria, there was snow. And one morning, uh, yeah, oh, in Istanbul. Yeah, we got back to Istanbul and we didn't have any money. We were waiting for money from a guy in Formentera. We ran into two English people, a big, great big Englishman with a big red beard, a corpulent person, and his wife who was tall and thin as a lath. And uh, they said that they were going to back to England, uh, and uh, we said, well, you know, listen, we're driving as far as the Spanish border. So they said, fine. So they came with us. We didn't tell them anything about having any drugs aboard the van at all. And in Turkey, uh, in the morning early, everybody was asleep. I was driving. I was assigned to drive. It could have been Glenn. Uh, we'd shared driving. And we, I came up a hill, a cobblestoned hill, and with a sort of a cliff face on the left and a drop away into fields on the right. And... I saw actually two policemen on the road, and uh, there was no traffic. Just sort of as I saw them out of the corner of my eye, I reached the top of the hill, and the it was total ice, it was black ice. I, you, you didn't see that there was ice. Uh, next thing was the vans pirouetted and started to pirouette. And I think it probably went around twice before going backward down the hill ahead and then rolled, slid off the side and rolled over a couple of times down into a snowfield. Happily, it was a snowfield. It was, the snow was almost thigh deep. Uh, it, it lay on its side. And uh, I opened up the door on the other side, passenger side. And um, I saw the two, two fours running down the uh, hill towards me. 
was kind of been that far, but it seemed like we rolled a long way because it took them a little while to to get there. I jumped out. I said, uh, "Everybody okay?" And I heard Glenn say, "Yeah, yeah," and people said, "Yeah, yeah," and then, "Oh my God!" The English woman had seen. A, a bag of hashish in a plastic bag hanging from what had been the ceiling and of course they didn't know so they said, oh my god because I said probably she knew what it was because I said to Glenn hey man listen stash the hash and so anyway I jumped out ran up the 10 20 paces plugged up through the snow and put my hands out like a crucified Christ almost, and said to the cops, we fell over, we rolled over. And they said, yeah, yeah, they knew we'd rolled I, I, I just, delaying tactics, said anything. We rolled over, we rolled over the door, and nobody hurt. And So they stopped for a second, and that was enough for them to stash the hatch. We had to pull the wagon out of the field, and I don't know who arranged it, whether it was the cops or somebody, but next thing was a big green army truck arrived on the road and a whole lot of guys in military uniform were discharged from it. It turned out they were Russians, they were soldiers and they had a military base just down the road. So they came into the snowfield and we all together pushed, lifted the car up onto its wheels. They then tied a rope to it and with this big seven-wheel or an eight-wheel truck towed it out. So it was brought into the yard and some guys came out who were mechanics and it was really excruciating because they tapped the side of the panels where the dope was and they said, uh, we can fix this because the doors were sprung. The doors were hanging off and the windows were broken. So we'll fix it and uh, Two, three days? He said, fine. It turned out to be maybe three days. We set off. Uh, anyway, uh, we were waved through in Yugoslavia, Italy, France. They sort of sympathised with us, joked, and let us go. Glenn was ill, stomach bug. Americans tend to have these sort of problems in Europe. And I think it took probably about 48 hours or something like that to get to the Spanish border. And then on the Spanish border, it was a beautiful day as we went on down to La Junquera. As soon as we got around the corner, the last corner, we saw that we were in deep trouble because um, there was a, an oval customs building in the middle of a big apron of concrete. And there were cars two queues I think of, of cars each about ten cars going into Spain and I don't think there could have been queues coming out because what, what they were interested in was it was just before Christmas two days before Christmas and so Spaniards were coming home from working in Belgium working in Hollywood and so on and they were bringing back I mean some had refrigerators on top of their cars and uh, I remember we seeing a, a fat portly man sort of covered in sweat dragging out the seats of his car because the customs were insisting on seeing everything and we could see that the people had all their luggage out suitcases open they were searching everything and all around the periphery were big trucks waiting facing out waiting to be searched there were teams going around searching all the trucks when our turn came 
You could see we were in deep shit. Uh, so uh, a, a, a couple of customs came along, asked us where we'd come from, and so on, told them. Next thing was a fat guy, very unlikely to be the kind of person who would do this, got the door open and, and looked, started looking in the front underneath where the paddles were and this sort of thing, glove compartment, and then decided that he'd climb over the barrier into the back. Now, this was not an easy feat for a, a relatively gym, gymnastic person, uh, but uh, he, he pulled himself over anyway, and uh, he now had a flashlight, and he was shining it all around the back. I was standing by the door with Glenn. He said, he said, we're getting busted. I said, right. But I looked in, and there was your man with a torch on the very panel where we had been. Where we had unscrewed it, and probably the screws showed a bit of... Um, brightness but anyway he was looking at the panels in general and just happened to stop on that one and uh, he was producing a screwdriver uh, but he was really poking around on the back so it was, that was the point at which I said to Glenn myself and the man and he said we're getting busted so I had the, the passport the two passports in my hand because it's the usual thing the driver passes along the passports, but I had them in my hand when he told us to get out. And so I then said to Glenn, uh, okay man, let's go. And I set off walking with the passport in my hand and a sort of a, a, a lost look on my face, where, the, where am I supposed to go with this? Uh, uh, and I walked around the corner of the Oval and there was a, um, a window where they were taking papers and passports. But I turned around to say to Glenn, to say something to Glenn, and Glenn wasn't there. I thought, well, look, I'd better get out of here and uh, see what happens. Will, will he come? Or has he found his own way out? So I went across, cut across to the trucks, got underneath the trucks and then started moving behind the trucks and underneath the trucks to get around to this side to be able to see what was happening. I could only see legs, uh, uniformed legs and Glenn's legs in the middle and them all moving away. So I saw that I knew that Glenn had been busted. I remember seeing his face so I must have got to a vantage point and his face was just completely pale. And um, then I headed for Spain, which was really stupid. I should have headed for France. Uh, but I, I had friends in Spain. I had a wife, I had children. This is why I headed for Spain, which was really stupid. I then got down into Spain. I, I think um, we're towards the end of your story now, but... Well, we'll keep that for people to find out for themselves. Absolutely. It's a great yeah, place to stop, I think. We won't create a spoiler. That's right. I got back into Spain, and after that, the adventures really began, <laughs> shall we say. Then the real proverbial hit the fan. Um, before I go, I, it would be great if you've got time for us to go out, because we're here in Varadere in Ibiza town. Yeah. Um, we've talked talk a lot about the Domino Bar. If you could show me the location of that. I can show you the domino bar, I can show you the little house where I, uh, I 
is out. It's just yes, so clear. that would be great. Let's head out. In part two of the Damien Enright interview, available soon, we will walk up to visit the apartment in Plaza del Sol, Del Vila, where he hid from the police following his failed turkey dope run. Then we walk down to the port to discover that the infamous Domino Bar is still there, now being used as a cellar storeroom. This haunting song was recorded in San Jose in the 1950s in Ibiza. It's called Bon Amor Jo et Venk Aver, which roughly translates as Good Love, I'll Come See You. It's part of the Alan Lomax collection at the American Folklife Centre in the Library of Congress. It's used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. Thank you.